for coming up to this retreat. Probably all of us being wherever we were, perhaps for the first few days, getting close to coming up or longer than that, our our bodies were where we were and our minds were ahead of ourselves to what it was going to be like up here, being excited about it or frightened or ambivalent, looking forward to seeing old friends or our bodies were walking around somewhere else while our minds were about what we thought our retreat would be like. Some of you have been scheduled it a long time ago. And now we're here. Our bodies are here and our minds are now thinking back (laughs) where we're going to and how it's going to be like and what the people have been waiting for us at the interview. And some of us are excited about going back and some of us are ambivalent about going back. I thought of just a few uh, remarks tonight on the art of mindful living, mainly um, oriented towards the fact that we are going back to some place, leaving here. Um, just some bits and pieces that uh, perhaps will be of some help. First off, uh, in response to something that Corrado said last night, his story on traffic in Rome, if you remember, mm-hmm. and uh, the, as an example of sanya, that is the tendency of the mind to regard things as being this or that and to put a particular label on it. This is a this and that's a that. This is traffic in Rome and not really seeing the actuality so much as everything that comes about in relationship to that concept. And uh, while he was doing that, suddenly I realized I have my own version of it about Cambridge. (laughs) Um, Except it's more, well, it's actually the same. It's an example of unawareness. Um, If you've grown up in uh, Brooklyn, New York, a place called Coney Island, as I did. Um, Very, very urban, to put it mildly. (laughs) And if you've been traveling on the uh, the subway and thought rush hour was a normal thing to do, a normal way for human beings to (laughs) to live because you didn't know any better. And if you went to high school, uh, about five minutes away from the world's most famous amusement park at the time, Coney Island. Uh, You had the parachute jump as your icon, not the synagogue or the Catholic Church. (laughs) If some years later suddenly you wind up in Cambridge, you feel like you're in the heaven heaven realms. I mean, it's just, it's paradise. You just can't believe that a place like this could exist and that you could be fortunate enough to be allowed into it. (laughs) So I think I can safely say that I've adopted, adapted, I've adopted Cambridge um, as my hometown. 
and I thought I loved it very much until Corrado's talk. Now I'm not so sure. <laughs> because uh, the word Cambridge, because I liked living there. I've been living there over 20 years, maybe 25 years. Um, it has such a, such a buzzword for me, you know, Cambridge. And at the beginning when I was there, you know, just seeing it on stationery or postage, you know, think Cambridge. <laughs> really, you have to understand the starting point. It just felt a very wonderful, important place to be living with people from all over the world and uh, all these interesting people and great universities and these incredible coffee shops and bookstores. and So Cambridge. Uh, so that word... I just say it and I feel happy. <laughs> and it feels like everything is okay as long as I'm in Cambridge. But uh, the Cambridge that I uh, first encountered about 25 years ago has dramatically changed. And now I understand why friends have been saying, you still like Cambridge, huh? <laughs> and being concerned about why a center was started in the city or why not take opportunities to live in the country and so forth. And of course, I could see a lot of what was going on, a lot of really tremendous changes. Uh, population dramatically increased, cars and people and all the old, a lot of the wooden things are now replaced by plastic things and chains. And it's very much of a tourist place. The one stop if you come to Boston is let's see Harvard Square in Cambridge. Um, so it's, in one sense, dramatically different. But I still have this word, Cambridge. And I started to feel, after hearing Carrado's talk and looking at it, that it's as if I, perhaps I went to sleep for 25 years, or maybe just, maybe 15. Uh, or it was like Mr. Magoo or something, you know. <laughs> And in the meantime, these, <laughs> these, these giant moving vans, you know, these new big ones that they have, real big ones, came in, they moved the whole town out. <laughs> and they moved the whole new one in, right? You know, and I woke up, and I still keep calling it Cambridge. And I think I'm living in Cambridge, and it makes me happy. <laughs> so when I get back, I've got to really put it to a test to see if how different the sanya is from the actuality. I don't know. Might be a cr life crisis. <laughs> Might have to start a support group of ex-Cambridge ex people. <laughs> anyway. Um, I think in, in terms of the direction we're going, which is out of here, going home, uh, to me, the most important thing is not any particular techniques or suggestions, and I'll make a few, uh, about applying the practice in daily life, let's say in a city or wherever you are, in family life, in schools, business, uh, but an attitude. Um,
if the attitude, uh, the phrase actually, the art of mindful living, uh, I think it's a very beautiful phrase. I think we have to really hear what that is saying. Uh, It's a much bigger conception of the practice than perhaps how we have come to feel the practice as being, which is mainly sitting and walking or going to special places in Asia or here. Meditation centers, monasteries, retreat places, and the practice that's featured is always the sitting and walking. And you know, Buddha is usually in that position. He's not vacuuming or <laughs> taking out the garbage. He's in that one posture. Sometimes he's standing, or that lying down posture. <laughs> but you don't see it that often. And so, even though we, all of us talk a great deal about being mindful in all four postures and bringing awareness into daily life and so forth. I found over the years that uh, basically what we really mean is sitting. And then maybe we'll let some walking in on it. I mean, formal walking. Uh, We perhaps approve of the idea that the practice is everywhere. And that wherever you are is a perfect place to practice. But that's perhaps another sanya, because the actuality is we're not really as motivated or as alert very often as we, as we are when we're at a retreat center. A kind of, the things we do here are special and spiritual. And then we go back. So much of our life is spent in doing the normal things that everyone does. And perhaps we have special places to sit a few times a day fixed up in special ways and so it gives us a sense of something special is going to happen in this special room to make us into a special person, I guess. But most of our life is lived uh, in ordinariness and I'm not saying that in any way, in a negative way at all. Uh, Ordinariness. Uh, Doing all kinds of small actions, uh, all kinds of transactions that in and of themselves may not be noteworthy, but This is what makes up our life. Now, if you hear that it's it's mindful living, that means living. It's not any one activity is not a symbol for the whole thing. Or it may be a symbol, but it isn't really the whole thing. So that the practice is literally wherever we are. And to develop that attitude, if you can do that, if you can begin to see that whether we enjoy where we are or whether we approve of it or whether we hate it or whether it's a beautiful place or it's an ugly place or whether it's officially spiritual or not, it doesn't really matter. It's all equal. From that point of view, sitting in the hall and cleaning a toilet are equally spiritual or not spiritual, depending on how you keep your mind. Remember the sutta that we've been going over all week on ideal solitude when the Buddha says that ideal solitude, when you push it far enough, it's not just the the fact that the body is alone. It can be, but it's the mind. If the mind is alone, and alone here means not crowded in by the past or the future or being lost in the present, but rather being present in the present. Being present. So that from that point of view, 
this kind of uh, solitude or way of being alone is our practice. We keep falling out of the moment, falling into unconsciousness, somewhat asleep. And the practice is to come back, for all I know, millions or billions of times, to come back to where we are and to fully experience that place. Uh, What we think of as obstacles uh, turn into teachers for us, great bodhisattvas. Some of you I know who are really steeped in Theravada, you may not know what a bodhisattva is. Some of the, the different sects get so insulated. But one meaning of bodhisattva, in addition to being a, a kind, in a sense, a Buddha in training, is a, a great helper and benefactor of others, caring for others, hearing the cries for help from others, and, and helping. Spiritual friend, Dharma friend. Shantideva, a very great Indian yogi, once said the greatest obstacle to spiritual progress is the absence of obstacles. Can you imagine if it were all just a breeze? You know, we need some, something to go against, to bring out the best that's in us and the worst and to see it so that we can genuinely free ourselves from it. And so in addition to the attitude being one of uh, seeing wherever we are as being an equally fruitful place, at least potentially, for our practice to flower, it also includes what's happening in those places. And if what's happening is seems to be an obstacle to understand that that obstacle is a bodhisattva. Potentially, that if we relate to it properly, that there's bound to be something that we learn about ourselves and whether we, what we learn about ourselves is what we like to learn or not, it's the beginnings of transforming that energy A number of you ask questions about how does the energy of anger uh, contribute to, let's say, the development of an an enlightened mind. Just think of all the anger, all the energy that's contained in anger. And when awareness, in a sense, treats it, when it's treated by awareness, especially as the awareness becomes uh, strong, steady, then that anger is transformed. The energy that's held captive in the anger is released and is potentially useful for all kinds of beneficial things for us. The practice can deepen. And that's the same with all the things that happen to us. So, uh, as one Zen teacher I had used to say, a bad situation is a good situation. Now, we that may sound nice here during a talk, but when the bad situation is the one that we're in. Perhaps you can remember that, that a bad situation is a good situation. From this point of view, you know, some of you people who have been in Mahayana more 
Very often the bodhisattvas depicted as having, I think, a thousand arms and a thousand eyes, you know, just symbolic of wanting to help so many people. Is it a thousand arms? Can someone know a thousand arms? What? Yeah. Well, if a bad situation is a good situation, then the joint's just teeming with bodhisattvas. Just bodhisattvas wherever you look. When we go home, no matter what your situation, your boss, you don't, great bodhisattva. (laughs) You didn't know that. He didn't know it either. (laughs) Or she, sorry. (laughs) The men are going to be making a comeback soon, watch out. (laughs) We don't want it always to be assumed that when something is bad, it's a man. Even if it's true. (laughs) So I think, uh, however you come to that, however the mind begins to see uh, the necessity of re-educating itself. And it's not a grim thing. I don't think it'll work if it is. It has to become a kind of an adventure where you understand that the potential for learning is, is all over the place and that everything is workable. To me, one of the most important qualities that comes out of the practice after a while, and I don't know how long that period is, it varies for us, but a certain confidence develops. Mindfulness becomes adequate, samadhi and so forth. And we begin to learn that even though it's not that Trouble doesn't come to meditators. It comes to meditators as much as to anyone else. But the confidence that it's workable, that the training we're undergoing here enables us to have that confidence, that it's workable. We can turn it, in, turn it around. We can transform it. We can work with it, work on ourselves, work with other people in ways which... Um, in ways so that we don't get caught in the usual cycles of like begets like, somebody, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That we break that circuit. And if we find ourselves in situations that are not ones that we prefer, we still keep the mind at the side of the practice. We still keep that mind alive. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say, to always keep that mind alive. We have so many minds, you know. Have you seen a lot of minds take turns saying that they're you? throughout this week. But one of them definitely is the mind that decided to practice, at least one, because it got you here. It sent the check into IMS and bought the tickets and flew here, some of you from a distance. So there's some mind in us that wants to practice. That's the one. Stay with that one. (laughs) The other ones are going to come by. Thank you very much. Okay. Um... So what the art of mindful living has to do with just what it sounds like and you've been hearing it all week, uh, having to do with remaining present in in this moment, being awake to what is happening to, to us and around us right now, the people in our lives, nature, the situations that that come up. And in doing this or in attempting to do it, 
I think it may be that we're going against very powerful cultural energies that go in a very different way to try to be keep things simple and stick to the present from moment to moment. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of encouragement for that. That's why the Sangha is so important. <coughs> you know, when you're driving a car, sometimes you ever see these bumper stickers? I'd rather be, I'd rather be golfing. I'd rather be fishing. I'd rather be hunting. I'd rather be swimming. In other words, everyone would rather be anywhere but where they are. (laughs) And everyone's walking around with these, what do you call them? Earphones. Earphones. And so they're tuning out of where they are so they can hear who knows what tape is going on in the person's head. The main thing is they're not too interested in where they are. And there's a new TV. It may not be too new anymore, but it was new to me. You can watch two channels at the same time. (laughs) One big one goes on, and there's a little one in the corner, and it has two brothers fighting with each other, the advertisement. The the struggle is for which program to watch, but this way they can kind of see them both and finally decide which which should be the big one and which should get sent to Siberia in the corner, the little program. So if everyone wants to be somewhere else, and here, here we come out of IMS glowing, and we just want to be where we are. So, I don't know, good luck. But we have to do it anyway. Um, this mindfulness bell, many of you have uh, heard of Thich Nhat Hanh and um, he uses uh, he's kind of extended that he, I, I don't know if it was helpful for you a few people have said it was uh, it's the first time that we've used it on a retreat um, the bell goes off and you just stop and you breathe mindfully um, what he's done is encourage people to use this idea but in, in very creative ways in a variety of situations so when we go home a few of these will apply to our life and others you can make up, you know, just from your own life. One, for example, uh, red light and green light. Your car has to come to a stop. There's a red light. That's a mindfulness bell. So if you decide it is, you turn it into that. You make it into a mindfulness bell and while you're there, you breathe. Or perhaps you can use traffic jam as a mindfulness bell. Some of you already are using those beeper watches. I know it's for mindfulness, but it's still it's still irritated me every time it happened in the hall. It helped your mindfulness, perhaps, but not mine. Um, The telephone. When the telephone rings, you can pause. Just let the the actual ringing of the phone serve as like a temple bell, summoning you to unify yourself. Uh, I've added something to it and you can all be very creative at these things. Um, In addition to breathing, I form the intention to be awake no matter who's on the other end. Whether it's... (laughs) That's a hard one. 
like it could be someone from the Boston Globe wanting to sell you a subscription, which you know usually are just either fall asleep in the middle of it or just, or it could be a dear friend, but staying awake and breathing. And I'm sure you'll be able to see the implications of this. You can just find ways of doing this. He's encouraged families to set aside a little meditation room where people can go and sit and breathe. It includes the children. For example, he described in, in, where sometimes there's, things are off in the family. Perhaps an argument is starting or people are not listening to each other. It's just, you know, it's not working. And sometimes a child, anyone in the family has the right to go in and ring the bell in, the, in this little room and then everyone stops and follows their breath. I think, in a way, these are sort of like desperate attempts to help us wake up. The key thing is just, just wake up for all of us. It's the same. It's the same message. But we need all the help we can get. Now, one of the values of using the breath, um, I have found personally, and some people have found as well, is that because of its ongoing nature, that is, you're not introducing anything from anywhere, we keep breathing, uh, it can be very helpful in keeping us grounded in the present moment in daily life. Whether you do it all the time or attempt to do it all the time, and I know that that's asking a lot, and you may not be drawn to doing that, and that's fine. But even if you use it from time to time, whenever you feel you're losing it, just recently, a small example comes to mind, being on the line uh, in a supermarket and being a little bit edgy, wanting to you know, bring my stuff to the cashier and go to where I had to go. And suddenly the person decides to join Bread and Circus. You know, There I am and they want to pay by check and you know, they have to fill out forms and you know, I'm standing there. <laughs> you come to the breath, you look at your own impatience, what else are you going to do? I mean, the event's going to happen anyway. You could, you could stay there and suffer for those five minutes, which seemed like an eternity, or could seem like one. So there are all these kinds of things to do. Um, work. All of us need to find, if we already have work, that's great. Some of us need to find work or some of us have work, but it's not appropriate. So we may need to, to do that. Now, and as some of you know, in the Buddhist path, livelihood can actually be part of the path. That is, the challenge then becomes, uh, can somebody pay us for developing in Dharma? growing in Dharma. Actually, if you do it correctly, you, no matter what the job is, you can't. Well, I don't know about it, no matter what, but many jobs. It means while you're earning a living, first of all, can you do it in such a way as not to violate the precepts? If earning a living entails violating the precepts and sometimes in major ways, according to these guidelines, uh, if you wanted to continue along these lines, it'd probably be best to consider um, a different kind of work. 
So we're trying to find work that is not harmful to us, that is not harmful to others, that is not harmful to the planet. That one has had to be added now because we never thought that that was even an issue. We all have to become ecologists now, whether we like it or not. And if the work we're doing in some major way is destroying the planet, it's really self-destruction. We're blinded by greed. We don't see it. But let's say, um, whatever your job is, if you can find work that is not contributing suffering to this human situation, if you can find work that's actually contributing in other ways, uh, healing, harmony, something that's useful, of course you feel better when you do something that's useful. And it's good if the work that you have is work where you can grow personally. So that it's, uh, it's more meaningful. It becomes part of your practice. Now, there have been a few cases, a number, really a growing number in Cambridge. I can give you a few. These actually happen to people in two occupations. That is, sometimes you can't get... You, you, for one reason or another, you're not in the perfect occupation. It's too late. You don't have the required education. You have a large family to feed. Whatever the reason is, this is pretty much going to be your work. And perhaps it's not perfect. But with the right attitude, that is, we can bring Dharma into it and, in a sense, rehabilitate the work from inside. Renovate it. Renovate it from inside. Let me give you examples. Now, I don't know if it's this way in other towns, but in Cambridge, uh, many of the waiters and waitresses, no one's a, a real waiter or waitress. Everyone is a ballerina, a poet, a philosopher, a nuclear physicist, or a brain surgeon. <laughs> but temporarily, they're waiting table and that can be about 10 or 15 years. That te- <laughs> that, that temporary. And another adjunct occupation that's similar is driving a cab. Same thing. And some people, sometimes people who are doing this work, of course, feel, and, they, and often are there, they feel overqualified. And I really am just doing this to pay the rent and the most important thing is not this. It's, let's say, uh, poetry or whatever the person's doing on their own time. But when you look at it, it's a major chunk of a person's life, whether it's temporary or not. You know, it's, let's say, eight hours a day. And so, in a few cases, what came out of a kind of inquiry with, with people who are seriously annoyed or disturbed or dis- depressed about the fact that they had to do work that was not what they wanted to do, but that they had to do it. I'll just give you a few examples of how some people worked it out beautifully. If you look at, let's say, waiting table, but forget about all the status stuff about it, the evaluation, just look at the function. People are coming to eat. You're serving them. Often, uh, when people come to eat, they come together with friends. It's a happy time. Or someone's lonely and they come to eat. The point is, with a slight change in your attitude, you're a bodhisattva. It's service. Instead of seeing it as menial or worthless or wasting your time, you completely redefine the job so that it's a direct expression of all the books you're reading and the words that you hear in places like this and so forth. It's the same job. You're still waiting table, but inwardly there's been a transformation. 
And I think lots of occupations. I can't say all, because if the, if the job is such that it is directly destroying the quality of life, then that uh, means it's something you have to get out of. But many jobs uh, with a slight switch in the way in which we look at it, we can begin to enjoy it. We can begin to develop our practice in it. Not only the the development of mindfulness, which we're attempting to develop in whatever we do, but other very important spiritual qualities like compassion, like metta, loving kindness, generosity, and so forth. So it's really up to our creativity because they're just forms. They're forms and there is some latitude in these forms and what we give to them uh, can change it. Uh, Speech. A number of you are interested in that. Here, right speech is not a very big issue. But when we come home, most of us have to do a fair amount of talking. And in the Buddha's teaching, uh, right speech has to do with not lying, uh, not using speech that's harsh, not using speech that's divisive, that sets people up off against each other, and not using speech that's kind of kind of prattle. Empty speech is just nothing. And you could see that even there, the essence of it really is metta. That is speech that is uh, loving uh, is very, very different. It enhances life. There's so much power in speech. And we all have incredible power over the people in our lives just by the way we say things and what we say. Verbal behavior is quite something and it comes from someplace very, very deep. And so what you can start to do is take a look, begin to pay attention as to how you actually speak, not an ideal. You can set up a lab book, a kind of a book where, let's say, and you can do this with other Dharma principles as well, the perfections. You can take generosity or patience. Maybe take a month and work on generosity. Take a month and work on patience. Or if it's right speech, uh, what we have found is that there has to be a kind of an accountability. Maybe there's a better word for it than that. But uh, if you just say, well, I'm going to start to pay attention to, to right speech, but you don't review it, either alone, but ideally with other people. It's very helpful. And here's where the song that can come in can be very handy. The sangha can be one other person. It can be your wife or husband or lover. It could be someone who's interested in growing and in uh, taking these teachings and bringing some life into them. Uh, the, the right speech is not something that's just uh, something you read in a book on Buddhism. But it will be unless we take it and bring it into our actual life. Um, in, in Cambridge, we've tried, we've tried something that's been very successful. It's one of the, uh, I would say, the best experiments that we've tried, the most successful experiments. We have a retreat uh, once or twice a year where we have two weekends, which are just regular sitting and walking all day, all day and into the evening. 
with interviews and talks, just like here, but one weekend, another weekend, and then in between, we do that during those five evenings that connect the two weekends. And people are uh, have uh, commitments to their families, to, to work situations, to the university. Most, all the people who come to the center in Cambridge, that's what their situation is. And so in addition to the normal walking and sitting and so forth, uh, we've done right speech a lot and it's been tremendously fruitful so that we'll encourage people during the time that they're not doing the sitting, let's say during the week, those working hours or those hours in the family or those hours at school to take on the practice of right speech and to start to pay attention as to what happens when these two things up here, these two lips start flapping. And then when people come back in the evening, we start off by sitting and then as a group, we then, we share with each other, we, we draw one another out. Well, did you learn any, did you learn anything today? Now, when we first did it, we didn't do that second part. We just encouraged people to go and become aware of how they spoke and not much happened. What was important was for people to come back in the evening and in the midst of the sitting practice for all of us to review what happened during the day. And very often Monday and Tuesday, there's not a whole lot. People forget to do it or don't want to do it. By Wednesday, usually a lot of people are finding out quite a bit because speech goes comes from a very deep place. People find out that they lied a lot and they never knew that. Now, that we have a center and we do it that way, but you can innovate. You know, you can find ways of with yourself. That's what I meant by just keep a, at night, perhaps review the day and see how speech went or if you take one of the perfections or any spiritual quality, give it life by bringing it into your actual life and reviewing it, going into it, seeing what comes of that. We have found it to be very, very helpful. Relationship. Anyone who thinks they have something to say about relationship is a fool. <laughs> so, so I have, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> but I'll try in a very vague and general way. <laughs> this has nothing to do with any relationship I might have been in, or just in general. Why should uh, that relationships, we would all love to have harmonious relationships, and yet so often, I don't know if it's any more now than in the past, it seems to be, relationship is like, more like a battlefield. Um, so much suffering and torment and dissatisfaction and tearing apart, uh, sorrow and uh, children being affected by it and so forth. That seems to be the way it is, or your relationship is the way it is. Um, in a sense, there's nothing special about it. It's just bringing the same mindfulness into the relationship. It's beginning to actually look and see just what is our relationship, just actually, what is it? 
What does it feel like to be together? What happens when we are together? Learning to communicate openly and honestly with each other. Now, I'm sure many of you, I know some of you are trained therapists and so forth, and you know this really well, uh, better than I do. Um, A few things that I've learned that come directly from the practice, of course, is that mindfulness is crucial and metta. Don't uh, just reserve metta for those times when you sit on the cushion and say all these loving thoughts and feel just great, tears streaming down your cheeks, and you don't send it to an actual living person right in front of you. I mean, a real, live person, instead of some imagining of that person. And so it's bringing metta into sexuality so we don't treat each other as objects, so that there's a bit more refinement, a bit more compassion in our relationship, every aspect of it. And I think understanding is crucial. Uh, It's very hard to imagine genuine love without understanding. If people don't care enough to try to understand one another and to convey that to the other person, that I really want to understand you. Help me. I really would like to understand you. And we have to do it with each other. One person can't do it. Um, very quiet now. I knew I, I was going to skip it, but that, that you, you would all notice. And then there'd be a hundred notes on the... Uh, why don't you talk about relationship? The Theravadan Buddhism doesn't care about real life. I'm shifting over to Mahayana. I'm going over to Zen. They care about us. I don't know. Maybe it's true. I, um, Let me uh, describe uh, one pitfall that can happen. It's a misuse of the practice. And it seems to be, it happens mainly when your practice becomes more mature. It's a danger when the practice becomes stronger, oddly enough. Uh, I've done it, and I've talked to others who have done it, who have acknowledged that, yeah, that something like that happened. Uh, Let's say your samadhi becomes really nice and that uh, you fold your legs or you sit in a chair or however you do it and then within a reasonable period of time you become calm and there's some joy and peace and you develop this ability to really be with the breath a lot if you practice that's what happens and your ability to look into troublesome things the understanding aspect of our practice the insight work more and more we become able to approach anger and fear and so forth and to bring mindfulness, perhaps accompanied by the breath, to help us go into that. You become better at that. Well, what can happen is, let's say there's some difficulty in a relationship. People are, something's off. Uh, All you have to do is go to your little cushion, fold those little legs, and... It's like an elevator. You push the button, the breath starts, and you go right up. Feel happy. And you get up, no problem. Go out and start your day. Bouncy. Big smile on your face. And what if your partner is also a meditator? You know, they can do the same thing. Great, no problem. Except then, a week later or a few days later, it starts in again. 
Now, sometimes the increase in clarity and in wisdom, of course, will undermine the problem, but very often, it seems, uh, you can't work this one out exclusively on the cushion. Or put another way, the relationship has to sit on the cushion. I mean, there's a process going on. And so if you get really good at, it's not that you're denying there's a problem in the relationship, you look at it in the sitting. If someone says, are you trying to escape it? No, I look at it in my sitting, right there, eyeball to eyeball, and it just decomposes, it's impermanent, it falls away. (laughs) But the problem doesn't. The problem is permanent, it seems. So what's necessary is, uh, but that's a misuse of the practice. What's necessary is that whatever the problems are have to be gone into by the, by the, the parties involved with mindfulness, with understanding, with compassion, etc. But uh, the content has to be dealt with, it seems. And I think there's, to me, a myth that if we sit long and hard enough do you know a hundred three-month retreats or a thousand sessions? That some somehow all the problems of daily life will just disappear. Perhaps that's true for some people. Perhaps the breakthrough is so deep and thorough. I, I certainly think that is possible. But uh, if we conceive of our practice that way, I think it's the evidence doesn't seem to support that. I don't know what happened in Asia, but I can see what's happening here. And evidence doesn't support it. So it seems that we, we must bring the quality of attention to our relationships, at least at the level that we bring to our sitting. I mean, if you're more interested in your breath than the relationship you're in, what is that all about? Do you see what I... you get my drift? <laughs> um, There's a very, to me, one of the uh, most valuable uh, teachings having to do with mindfulness, because the implications just seem endless, uh, come from the Zen tradition. Um, and it has to do with, uh, I think it's Dogen, uh, the instructions to the cook. Some of you may have read it. And ostensibly, it's about telling the person who has the job of being the cook at the monastery how to carry out that role. But as one Zen master put it, it's really about cooking your life. And just to take the the points that have helped me so much out of it, uh, it's talking about one of the ways in a monastery where we, we don't, we have biases. We are biased. We don't see each situation as a perfect place to practice, but rather we have strong preferences. If there's money involved or sex or some or danger, we become really what we're alert, very alert. But in other situations where you know it doesn't seem like much is going on, we don't care that much and we kind of slip into forgetfulness. At any rate, in this this manual suggests to the cooks. I can't remember all the details, but in a nutshell, it's something like, um, let's say the emperor, uh, 
comes to visit the monastery. And because of that, there's lots of good food available, good ingredients. And so the cook has excellent ingredients and there's a whole, an emperor and a retinue of people. And so tremendous interest, uh, quality of attention is just wonderful and a super duper meal comes out of it. But then what happens when it's a bunch of scraggly old monks, you know, just coming for their meal and just a bunch of leftovers, you know, some old seaweed and some then there isn't that much attentiveness. And what the teaching is saying is that there's no difference, that the mindfulness should be there. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's not just to please someone or, to, or for high-status people. And so whether you have extraordinary ingredients or you have very little to work with, and whether the people you're cooking for are someone, in quotes, important people or not, we're fully awake in the moment that's our, that's, that means to be fully alive. Our commitment, commitment really is to the quality of our life. Openings, spiritual openings, dharma openings, enlightenment openings come in the present moment. Can you see how daily life and the penetration into so-called deeper levels, how it's the same? That's why so many enlightenment experiences that have been documented don't happen on the cushion. They happen in the oddest places. You know, a cherry blossom, that's not so odd, but a cherry blossom falling or a person's foot getting caught in a door. You know, if with that we'd all run out, I'm sure we'd be willing to get our foot caught in the door. (laughs) But we won't get enlightened. It has to do with the ripeness of mind. But everything is happening only now, only now. And so to practice that way, to bring wholehearted attention, it's really not special. It's what the Buddha is saying all along. And now, as lay people, because many of us don't have the opportunity to come to retreats like this, at places like this, perhaps once a year or maybe twice a year if we're fortunate. And so much of our year is spent in ordinariness, in our workaday world, our family life, and so forth. And so, if we don't learn how to bring mindfulness into the present moment and to uh, penetrate into the, the implications of that, to see the deep significance of that present moment without getting attached to it, then where is the momentum going to come from? That is, lay practice will remain something feeble. It will be a kind of exotic, like your annual vacation. I think I'll go to IMS for my annual nine days and get these nice pep talks and good vegetarian food, if that's what you like, and nice gentle people for nine days and then forget about it and come back again the next year. We need the momentum. After all, we have a lifetime, sometimes, of very destructive habits. And we're living on a planet with a lot of very destructive people. Do you think that sitting for half an hour a day in the morning, or in TM they say 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night, realistically, what do you think? We need much more than that. But it's not a matter of sitting. It's a matter of the quality of attention. And it's not a matter of how busy we are because wherever we are, there we are again. You know, we're breathing. We're right now. By the way, there was a great scholar here who corrected me. I had it all wrong. It's not wherever you are, there you are again. What is it? Wherever you go, that's where you are. Yeah, I twisted around a little. Yeah. Sorry, buckaroo bonsai. <laughs>
Um, I don't mean this to be grim, but more... (laughs) (laughs) But more, it seems to be our situation. And if we take it on in the right spirit, there's a lot of joy in ordinariness. It's really not in what we do, it's how we relate to what we do. And so if we can bring that quality of attention to just the ordinary things of life, that's, what, that's what's being asked for. Uh, it improves the quality of life. It's not some uh, grinding of teeth and the jaw tight and I'm going to try to be mindful all day today. It's not that at all. That won't last. Perhaps we should um, end off in terms of this, trying to develop this ability to be, uh, to give ourselves over 100% to whatever the situation is, simply because that's what our life is in that moment, whatever we encounter in that moment, that is our life. And if a good deal of the time we sp- is spent, I'd rather be hunting, I'd rather be fishing and all of that stuff, uh, it's a major part of our life. Vipassana students do it, the reason I know is because I meet them in Cambridge a lot. The three-month retreat is a very beautiful, wonderful institution here. Many people have prospered and spiritually from it. It's an invaluable thing to do when you're ready to do it. But it has a negative spin-off for some people. It's not the fault of the three-month retreat. It's a misuse of it, again. It's a misuse of practice. What I hear a lot of, not just in Cambridge, but people who come off these long retreats, they love it so much and value it so much that their life gets organized around it. And so you come off, let's say, a typical three-month retreat. You finish it. And you come back to Cambridge, which is where I meet people who have done it. And then you wear that three-month retreat like a combat rib- ribbon. You know, so the three-month retreat of 1988, 87, 86, and 84. Joseph, Sharon, you know, whoever was teaching. Carol, you know, Stephen and Michelle, that, that campaign. <laughs> And so a lot of the talk is about what's something that's over. You remember about the past. And a lot of the, the talk that isn't about how fantastic the three-month retreat was, it's about how am I going to raise money to get to the next one, kind of scheming and calculating. So approximately nine months goes by with not really all that much mindfulness. And, and you work it out. You manage to get some money and you go to the next three-month retreat. So is that kind of way of looking at reality, whereas what is being suggested by the term, the art of mindful living, is that it's unbiased. It means that here, right now, wherever that is, um, a number of years ago, the same Zen teacher who uh, asked me where I was, remember when I was complaining about wanting American food, but I was in Korea, and he asked me, well, where are you? I said, Korea, and he screamed, that's right. Uh, He gave me a training on this that I'll never forget. 
it started off in a very, very strange way, but um, it was quite helpful, amazingly helpful. Uh, this was some years ago uh, at a place called the Cambridge Zen Center. And uh, the teacher who was Sansanim, some of you know him, um, he would spend some time there and I would, uh, we would have these uh, sessions. Uh, there would be three-day ones that would go or from Thursday evening till Sunday night once a month, every month. And he was there for most of them, and I would help him. But sometimes he wasn't there, and so I would do it myself. And it was Christmas time, and it was getting close to Christmas, and so I asked him, uh, and there was no one signed up, including all the people who lived at the Zen Center. Everyone was going home for Christmas. And I was being—I was Jewish. I still am Jewish. But you know, I was there. I wasn't going home for Christmas. So there I was alone in this Zen center. Everyone else was splitting for different parts of the world. And at Sansanim, no one from the center is here. And uh, no one signed up for this retreat. So I guess we'll just cancel it, right? He said, why? (laughs) I'm serious. I said, well, you know, we give these retreats and people come and, you know, we, for them, right? said, maybe for them, but for you. (laughs) And he set the strangest task for me. He said, no, we give give Sashin the same. He said, you do everything you would do as if maybe a hundred people here, nobody here, doesn't matter. And I thought he was putting me on, he was joking. (laughs) He wasn't. He really wasn't. And, you know, he was my teacher, and I'm old-fashioned. I do what the teacher tells me most of the time. (laughs) Much of the time.
no one showed up. And I had these big gray robes on. And I hit bells and I chanted in Korean and, and uh, Chinese. And I sat and I walked and uh, lit incense and bowed. And I ate and... Uh, uh, I even gave myself interviews. <laughs> There's really only one question. Are you insane? <laughs> do you need to be do you need to be carted out of here? And the first day was uh, a mixture of weird and foolish and I felt embarrassed and in the mornings we would bow 108 times to the Buddha, I did that. And I realized how much I was dependent on others seeing me do it. You know, and others doing it with me. You're like, we're all doing this, you know. And there was no one there. I mean, I could have just, you know, lied on my back or put on a... But I, I was trying to do it. I figured, well, he must know better than I. I'll just do it. By Saturday afternoon, it was wonderful. Just wonderful. It was like being liberated from doing something for someone else. I'm doing this in order to get something. It was just practicing. I'm not saying that I'm in that space, but... Uh, it certainly moved me to a point of understanding that the real issue is uh, respect for our life no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what the situation is. Cleaning a toilet, getting a Nobel Prize. It's all the same in one sense. So I wish us all well as we make our way back sometime tomorrow. In the meantime, the retreat is still very much with us. Let's give it our best.